0: Big news for anyone who loves the history of D-Day. Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours has just launched a brand new tour that visits the D-Day beaches and lots of other sites in rural France and all from the comfort of a luxurious cruise on the Seine River. Now, we ran this tour in 2024 and it was a huge success. It sold out in a matter of weeks, so now we've rolled it out again for 2025. But this time, there'll be three departures in June, July and September, giving you three times the opportunity to join us. The cruise is on board the luxurious Armadeus Diamond and begins and ends in Paris. Over eight days, you'll enjoy the history, scenery and culture of the beautiful Seine River. But as an exclusive offering just for our passengers, you'll enjoy two full days touring the D-Day landing beaches in both the US and British sectors, plus daily seminars on board the ship that unpack the history of D-Day. And like all our tours, you'll be hosted by one of our expert historians who'll bring the story of D-Day to life. And if you've been on one of our tours before, you'll know that our historians really are the best there is. This is an exclusive cruise and places are extremely limited.
1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. A Living History production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary
3: Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History podcast. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Heart, and with me is Gary Big Boy Bane. Hi, Gary. Or am I? Or are you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's keep that for another day. <laughs> All right. Uh, what are we doing today, Pete? Uh, we're doing South North <laughs> in peacetime. The most ludicrous title for a series we've ever had. Because, once again, they're at war. They're back to... Well, some of them are back to Iraq. And we, we've enjoyed uh, doing the, the the work for this one, haven't we? Because uh, it, it's something new and it, it, it's got a lot of detail in this one about what it was actually like to be a soldier in Iraq.
4: And you got it to rhyme.
3: Yes, <laughs> back
4: to Iraq. So... So... In the months that followed the return of the new South Nazuzard veterans, oh, new veterans, new veterans, <laughs> uh, it became evident that whatever the flights of fancy of the British and U.S. governments, it was nevertheless obvious that Iraq was not going to return to a state of normalcy
3: within the near future. Really, who would have thought that, other than almost anybody with any brain or sense or any sort of knowledge of the world, or not, in fact.
4: Now, it became evident that the grudging tolerance of the British occupation in the
3: Almara... That's around, yeah, around Basra and all that.
4: was rapidly degenerating into open revolt and the widespread use of every method of terrorist insurgence.
3: Now, they'd originally thought this was just a phenomenon around the US-occupied bit, around Baghdad, and, uh, and there was the idea that, oh, those silly old Americans, they don't understand hearts and minds. Like, what we British do... Uh, I'm being Gary there. I hope you notice. Uh, I can do a Gary voice. Was that me, Gary? <laughs> that was me being you. Oh. Uh, uh, But you know, uh, the, the and it's not just that. It's it's that. Uh, I mean, America. They they thought that America was the great Satan, and so there was a w- more of a willingness to become a martyr to 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 have a a chop at them, literally or figuratively. Um, but it, something happens as the months draw on, doesn't it? What happens, Gary? What? Well, it became apparent that the British, too, were targets to be hit at every opportunity as
4: the trouble spread to the main Basra area where they were centred. I remember that on the news at
3: the time. Yeah. It, uh, now, the British were trying. their a good old hearts and minds thing. It, I mean, they've, they've done this for, for centuries. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how... Ri- We've over we we over congratulate ourselves on it, uh, and we always have
4: done. Yeah, it largely consists of engaging with the community by not wearing helmets, <laughs> not even purple ones. No, and oh god, and uh, attempting to be as nice as possible to the children that inevitably surrounded them.
3: Now, a lot of uh, the, the more cynical say that this is more about the about just being goody two-shoes in front of the all-seeing eye of the international media. But in the past, it has sometimes helped, hasn't it, to to diffuse an inflamed situation. Uh, I think it's going to be tested to the limit in Iraq, or rather, I think it was, and um, it, it didn't work. So what happens? Well, the attacks
4: on British troops increased, and it was inevitable that a siege mentality spread amongst them as gestures of friendship seemed to provoke only more violence. Now, so what
3: had then happened is you get uh, systematic precautions against terrorist attack. Uh, you get the sort of patrolling methods that it had in the bitter guerrilla war in Northern Ireland, and that well, what what effects that going to have? Well, it's not exactly going to win hearts and
4: minds, is it? As the whole objective was to keep the local cop- local population at arm's length, where they couldn't actually do any harm. Now, there was a continuing need for individual reinforcements from the TA. And further calls were made under Optelic Two and Optelic Three. Optelic is what Gary? Uh, it's what you do at the
3: opticians. It's the code for for uh, for Iraq operations. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, now during it runs, these call- runs up to about eight or nine, doesn't it? It goes, oh, goes God, really uh, high. Oh, you put me 12? on the spot there,
4: Pete. I don't actually know, and neither do I. So that was Now during these call ups, are you trying to say something, Gary? I'm trying to be professional, Pete. <laughs> oh, sorry. Now, during these
3: call-ups, 307 battery were largely left alone. They were, they were, they were. But Optelic 4 is a different matter, and they're going to have to make a serious contribution to to, to operations. Um, So uh, it was a bit well simple, wasn't it, this time? Why was it simpler? There's one thing that's really obvious, and they should have sorted out the first time. What's that?
4: Uh, well, they knew right from the start that they'd be sending their men to the First Regiment Royal Horse Artillery, uh, whereas before there there was some confusion about it. they went and some of them went to uh, uh, medical support yeah, units, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. Now, after their deliberations, once again the mobilisation who's deliberations were sent out
3: finished. I was just trying to ask you who deliberated the deliberations of the bat- battery as to who should go. Sorry, the
4: mobilisation notices, I shall deal with you later, were sent out. And once again, Dan Zed. Dan Zed? Oh, well, are you going to explain why he's called Dan Zed? um, Well, we've explained this before because they are still relatively young
3: men and they may well hear this. And they don't want to have the piss taken out by their crude and ignorant friends i have crude and ignorant friends
4: now we have a large american population uh, listening to our podcast do they understand the alphabet? so i'm just going to rephrase for them dan z now he was amongst those who received the court to arms he'd been promoted oh god another person promoted to the In the interim to Lance Bombardier and had made it clear that he was willing to go, but at the same time, he was deeply concerned as to the the reaction of those closest to
3: him. And this is what he said good old Dan said, I wasn't too worried about myself, I was more worried about what my girlfriend was going to say and my family. I have to say that they took it quite well. They're the real veterans of this whole thing, as they've been through it before as well. She was a little bit upset because she knew she wouldn't be seeing me for six months. In fact, she was shocked that I was going for six months. You knew it was going to be roughly uh, a, a roughly six-month tour. I wouldn't say I was happy, but I was glad to have another crack of the whip. Your wife would be delighted if you were going away for six months. I think yours
4: would pay for you to go away for six months. Now, amongst the men at Ballwell, there was a conflux of emotions. Have you put that in to trip me up? <laughs> well, I've never heard that word, so... <laughs> As some men pressed themselves forward whilst others were unsure or frankly dreaded the call. Men with young families... Yeah, civilian careers, Gary. Some people, it's a bad time to go. Yeah, some, it's impossible for some and, and you couldn't put some of them on hold and some were just nervous of whether they would be up to the challenge.
3: Now, this is what one young gunner, Andrew R. R. Uh, uh, he's a 425-3, he, he he sort of explains it. What does he say?
4: They were calling people up, but I volunteered. I don't know what it was. Probably I'm a bit mad. <laughs> I just wanted to do it. It was on the impo- impulse. Sounds good. I'll do it. Do something. Earn a medal. See something different. I'd never been abroad before at all. I wanted to go somewhere different from everyone else. Not Spain, not Tunisia, not the Bahamas. I wanted to go somewhere different. Uh, Well, certainly different. I haven't been to any of
3: those places.
4: (laughs) He goes on. And I felt like I was making a difference whilst I was doing it. Mum didn't know what to think. Why, Andrew, why do you have to go out and do this thing? She was scared. To her, I'm a little angel. Aren't you scared? Yes, but I was excited at the same time. It's something different. I know that half the lads my age aren't going to be able to do nothing like this. They'll never comprehend it. I wanted to be someone different. I saw it as an adventure.
3: And uh, that, that rings true for across the ages to the various uh, conflicts of the 20th century as well before it. Um, once, uh, uh, another who tried to volunteer, you may remember from last time, he was stopped uh he stopped was second lieutenant ali burns and he was getting he'd been telling people to volunteer he'd been he'd been really really keen and he was getting very frustrated uh, when he faces yet another setback what does ali burns say
4: once again i put my name forward and i was phoned and told i was going i was told that as far as the regiment was concerned i was going to iraq Very excited, very happy. I had to tell my fiancée and she was upset. But she understands it was something I wanted to do. If my lads are doing it, I need to experience it. Know what they're going through. The battery said they were 99% sure I was going in October 2003. I had to tell work. A couple of weeks before I was meant to deploy, my papers hadn't turned up, so we were questioning it. Colonel Russell said, you're lucky you're on the reserve list i said what do you mean colonel i've been told i'm going he went oh no 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 you're not called up you're not going now i had such a sinking feeling i was gutted Then I had to go back to work, and it makes you
3: feel like you've been a fraud. It was a pretty shitty time. I remember him telling me that because I interviewed Ali, uh, well, I interviewed all these, and he was really upset. Uh, uh, And uh, it was becoming apparent that the officers of the the South Nazis, of the TA generally, they're not likely to be, they're not going to be called up. Um, uh, And... uh, (laughs) You know the, the the active you know the active service style duties. Troop commanders, command post officers, and forward observation officers. Who do you think gets them in the army? Oh,
4: that's going to be the regular officers, and uh, I suppose all that remained to be offered to the TA officers were administrative duties or watchkeeping, sort of dead shifts at headquarters units,
3: which were often where. Back in the UK, Gary. Back 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 in Britain. So not deploying to Iraq at all. And dull as ditch water. Important, but dull as ditch water. So what does Battery Captain Richard King, Headquarters 307 Battery, say?
4: It's an issue of credibility. The more
3: boys we send away on
4: operations, the more they will have exposure to things that we can't experience. How can we show any empathy for them if we've got no idea what they've been put through? It will become an issue of credibility. More and more people will have done tours and be working for officers that haven't commanded anything. As an officer, how do you deal with it when he turns to you and says to you, you're talking rubbish, sir. I've done this for real, and this is how it should be done. He has a bit of a point, actually.
3: Yeah, and your voice is breaking out with the emotion of it. That was brilliant acting, voice acting at its best. Um, So, uh, when it comes down to it, the regular army prefer to use their own officers, uh, and it's natural, isn't it? Uh, It's understandable from the regular army perspective, but it leaves T officers, TA officers who were keen to volunteer, volunteer marginalised. They're, they're out of it uh, if they're not actively belittled in front of the men that they've they've got to command on a day-to-day basis. It's a really difficult situation at this stage of, of operations. Anyway, once again, when the dust settles down, how many South Nazi are sent? It's not many, is it? But No, no, it's
4: six men of the South Nazi and they'd been called up under Optelic 4 in February 2004.
3: Now, we can cut through the, the, the next bit because it's... It's the same preparatory call-up and course of basic training at Chilwall and uh, Grantham as, as they'd gone through the first time. We did that in one of the earlier podcasts. Uh, they're then sent down to join first RHA at their base at Tidworth, Bar- Tidworth Barracks. Tidworth where I met you. Yes, happy days. And here they're introduced to whatever battery to the, they've been posted to. Uh, and, and once again, there's problems. What, what problem might I have in mind? Well, I think you're referring to the integration again, aren't you? Uh, Because they've got to integrate in with the regulars. TA soldiers with regulars, yeah. That's not always good at this stage. And what does Gunner Andrew R, Chestnut Troop Battery, 1st RHA, say? The Gunners, they were the best. They
4: were great, really good mates, a good bunch of lads. The NCOs, I didn't really get on very well with them. They brought out all uh, all this stab, stupid TA bastard just something to ridicule me by. It was all the time constant. They also saw me as a liability on an operational tour and didn't really give me chance to prove myself. That happened the first time.
3: I can't remember who with. Yeah, it did. I can't remember as well. Um, it, it it just, it, yeah, uh, they've, uh, they've tried to eradicate it now. I know that because the reserves are so important. Uh, they did a bit of extra training with 1st RHA at Tidworth until April. And then they're on a flight out to Basra International Airport on the 10th of April 2004. When they get there, what happens then?
4: Well, they put aboard ordinary coaches for transport to the Shaiba logistics base and you're going to tell us what lance bombardier dan zed of b battery first regiment rha says
3: we were all trying to sort of nod off on the coach there was also quite a feeling of vulnerability you're in a soft skinned vehicle the coach is packed full you haven't got a weapon and you've got none of your personal kit you do feel quite vulnerable even though you have got an escort it's not a nice feeling knowing that you're on a coach that basically is a rpg magnet what's rpg gary uh, oh,
4: you've done me! Rocket-propelled grenade. Thank you.
3: Excellent.
4: <laughs> All I could think of was the uh, special patrol group. <laughs> For, God's sake. For some reason, <laughs> yeah, that was really that unfortunate.
3: SPG. <laughs> I know, and it was a hamster. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, now. So where are we now? They, by the way, what, what is Scheiber Camp or Sh- however you pronounce it? We, uh, we've no neither of us the slightest idea how to pronounce any of this stuff. Uh, it's a huge. Well, I don't know how to say LPG. <laughs> it's, it's a huge multinational sort of logistics bay, full of stores, and it's got many, many functions, many, many functions. Uh, and they had three days there to acclimatise. Uh, uh, what sort of temperature are they facing? Is, is it hot or is it cold? What is it? I refuse to answer. Oh, you're not sulking about the RPG thing, are you? No, it
4: rarely strayed below the middle to the late 30 degrees centigrade. 30 degrees centigrade.
3: That's 35 to 40, I would That's, That's pretty hot. Yes. We whined like buggery in Gallipoli when it was 38.
4: Now, they then moved down into the Basra area, which was to be where they operated. Now, in essence, they were to be used as infantry with no gunnery role at all. So no bangy things. Well no and Dan Zed was given the role of uh, second in command of a brick What's the that? standard patrolling formation of the British army which had perfected its urban techniques during their long and painful experience on the streets of uh, Northern Ireland
3: yeah, now, uh, he's an OP signaler, and he's very enthusiastic in his TA life about the the, the, the tactical infantry-style role. And he, he was also very, very keen on the sort of new kit that he was get, getting old, at like, getting his hands on with the regulars. What sort of thing am I talking about? We've mentioned
4: these We've before. We've mentioned these before, yeah. The Mini-Me light machine guns, the underslung grenade launcher for the SA-80s, the sophisticated GPS What's systems. What's GPS stuff? Oh, for God's sake... Uh, and the ever more effective night vision equipment. Goggles and things, uh, aren't they? Yeah. Geo positioning system.
3: Excellent. Gary. You had a little bit of a think. A little you? bit of thing, Buying yeah. yourself a bit but of I was time. again
4: thinking of SPG for some reason.
3: Well, that's it's got in, all in, the right <laughs> letters, but not,
4: not necessarily <laughs> in the right order. Now, on the 14th of April, remaining professional, they moved down the former presidential palace.
3: Uh, by the Shat al-Arab. Now, that, when you say move down, they moved into it. it, it it's, a, it's not just <clears> one building, me. is it? It's not like Buckingham. Well, oh, it's it a
4: huge complex split across two islands, and Dan Z, or Z, oh, well, was given an air-conditioned tent as accommodation. Oh, that's which proved
3: bit, That's not bad.
4: <laughs> no, no, it proved great blessing to him. Now the first RHA were taken over from the King's Royal Hussars who duly fine handed Fine body of men, Gary. Who duly handed over their responsibility Don't you for think working they are a fine of
3: men? with
4: the Iraqi Special <laughs> Operations Directorate. Are they a fine body of men? Um who uh, were in effect equivalent to British police in a mentoring and monitoring role.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's brilliant. Now, uh, so, let let's look at a brick patrol. Uh, so what, what do the brick patrols do? Well, for, what, do, for Dan Zed, it's frequent visits to, to the nearby police station, Iraqi police station, and that's at Al Jaimat in the Sheer Flats area. Uh, we won't be putting up a map of this because we've no idea where these things are. Uh, it, it's, what sort of a district are we talking about? Well, it was certainly a poor
4: district with considerable poverty evident everywhere. They is, were... it, is
3: it like Tottenham? Would you like
4: to keep interrupting me throughout? Uh, they were responsible for perimeter checks and general security patrols of the area, while their officer and NCOs dealt with the Iraqi
3: police. So they travel there in Land Rovers, uh, but but uh, it's very different from the relatively carefree movement that, that, that had marked their progress in 2003, isn't it?
4: Yeah. By now there were serious concerns over the increasingly effective suicide bombers and the deadly roadside bombs. It was known that previous uh, a previous unit had been ambushed while travelling in their Land Rovers, and they were in no mood to take any risks. What are those roadside bombs called? IED. <laughs> what does that stand for, Gary? <laughs> Improvised Explosive (laughs) Device. (laughs) Now, you're going to tell us what Lance Bombardier Dan Z of B Battery says.
3: Well, this is a long quote. This is
4: very long. You might
3: need to take a lie down. I think it's brilliant in the way it describes what they're doing. He says this. It was initially very, very... We were initially... Good start. Got the first word wrong. We were initially very, very wary of setting patterns. We tried to vary as much as we could within the time constraints, taking different routes. We went some crazy routes just to interlope. That's what they did in Northern Ireland. They'd never go the same way twice if they could help it. So they weren't entirely sure where we were going. We couldn't really afford to be outside the police station too long because eyes started looking, phone calls start being made. We'd get into the police station as quickly as we could, check inside the police station and then send four-man bricks out to check the streets outside. you take out three riflemen and try to get a minimi as well for the amount of firepower it can put down. We'd made ready... All we had to do was we flip the safety catch off and you can engage targets. You'd hard target out of the actual compound. As soon as you leave that safe area you're making yourself a hard target because if they wanted to have a go at us it would be either entering or leaving the building. That's when you're at your most vulnerable. So as fast as you can sprinting with your kit. You then move off at a normal pace. Split off into staggered file formation two on either side of the road two on one side of the road and two on the other keeping a reasonable spacing that allows you to cover all the arcs of fire to flank front and rear constantly constantly you're looking uh, but you did need 360 degree vision if the army could buy eyes in the back of your head it would be very helpful Checking windows, rooftops, down the street, stopping at corners, looking round corners, seeing what's down there. Basically, you're observing everything. People, vehicles, vehicles especially, anything suspicious, trailing wires, or a driver with his eyes so wide you'd think he would be on drugs. You can't really define what you're looking for. It's one of those things, you know it when you see it. You know in yourself that something's not right, so you either take cover or stop the vehicle and search it. Observing everything that could be a threat. As soon as you stop, you do what they call a 5 and 20 check. If you're going to be there for maybe 30 seconds, you check 5 metres around. You uproot everything that surrounds you, whether it's rubbish, rubbish boxes, checking for explosive devices, or anything that can cause you or your mates harm. If you're going to be there for any longer, then you start doing a 20-meter check, upturning everything, checking over walls, checking underneath cars. It's one of the things that was drilled into us. It does save your life, because if you don't see the IED, improvised explosive device, Gary, it's going to go off and you're going to die. But if you see it You can do something about it. We were there as a subtle deterrent. If your potential terrorist sees that there's a four-man British patrol going round, he's going to be less inclined to lay an IED. It deters RPG, rocket patrol grenade, Gary, and small arms shooting as well. The more professional a patrol looks, well, that's half the battle won. They're less inclined to take you on. And I always thought, when I heard him say that, I thought it was a brilliant description and I think that was the first time I'd heard of the 5 and 20 check because I hadn't done Northern Ireland people by then, before I did him. Now, this
4: was clearly not a hearts and minds approach. No. Now, sometimes they took members of the Iraqi police with them to train them in British Army methods, but already a deep distrust was developing due to the justified suspicion that they were harbouring terrorists themselves. Now, on that thought, we'll take
2: a short break.
4: Another regular duty carried out by Dan Zed was that of acting as escort to vehicles travelling back to the main logistics camp at Shaiba. Now, this was about a 25-minute journey, but it was absolutely essential that they took every precaution as, of course, their enemies knew where they were going and could prepare the roadside ambushes. And this is, once more,
3: Lance Bombardier Dan Zed of B Battery. Although it becomes a routine task, you're always aware that you can't let your dr- guard drop at any point. The speed at which we drove was phenomenal, 70 or 80 mile per hour down the street, as fast as we could possibly go, because the faster a vehicle is moving, the harder it is to hit. If you get caught in traffic, you dismount straight away. If there's nobody in the vehicle, it's not so bad if it gets hit, plus troopers, troops on the ground deters anybody trying to make an attack most rpg attacks are from close range within 100 meters top cover is quite essential two people hanging out of the roof of the land rovers a minimi at the front and a minimi at the back depending on the number of vehicles i did a lot of top cover to be honest i was quite happy you get to see everything (laughs) then you're not stuck inside a vehicle with restricted vision plus you have the opportunity to have a go at them if they have a go at you we reckon we drove through quite a few remote-controlled IEDs. They used to use things like key fobs for unlocking your car and cordless telephones to detonate the device. That gives them an, an advantage in that there isn't a wire trailing back to their position. They can set it off from pretty much anywhere. The disadvantage is our... I'm not sure that we should have been telling me this in 2003. is our ECM. Now, this is a difficult one, and I bet you don't know this one. What's an ECM? Electronic countermeasures. That's brilliant. And that can cut the signal out. We drove through quite a few, drove through it, and they'd go off when we a 100 metres down the road. It's a very good bit of kit. It protects the vehicle and the people inside it. And what it means is they'd be pressing it, thinking, why is it not working? Why is it not going off? And then when they get out of the range of the ECM, off it goes. You're working very hard. Yes, yes, but I'm enjoying it because
4: it's a great. I think these folks are great. Wherever they went, they were under constant danger of attack, a bit like you. <laughs> and uh, nowhere was safe as the Iraqi insurgents launched frequent mortar attacks made on Basra Palace. And again, you're going to
3: be taking the lead with Lance Bombardier Dan Zed. Initially, it's quite funny. As soon as that first mortar lands, everybody starts to panic. I wasn't too bothered by it because I'm an artillery OP observation person and large bangs around me just don't tend to bother me that much. (laughs) I'm quite calm when it comes to mortars. RPGs are a different matter. I flap at RPGs. As soon as something lands in the camp, you go and get your body armour, helmet and go to the mortar shelters. While you're doing that, you observe everybody around you doing the 20-second shuffle, running around like madmen. They do all the wrong things for about 20 seconds, run to the wrong room, pick up somebody else's body armour, and before they collect themselves and do what they're supposed to do. And then it gets boring. It's annoying when you wake up at 3 in the morning with a mortar. You're tempted just to stay in bed. As far as I know, they never hit anything in Basra Palace. Now, you have one. Tell us about you. You often get up in the middle of the night, don't you, Gary? Yes, for
4: very similar reasons. Is it Malta attacks? It's something very similar, yes. Now, after about a month, they moved to the former Bath Party headquarters. Bah-ha. Bath Party headquarters. They're from In, uh, in centre of Basra, that unsurprisingly had been badly damaged during the war by the intensive Allied bombing and
3: rocket attacks. Here... Oh yes yeah, dan uh, who, uh, who's this well it's here, here that the, the South Dutch ours lads a couple of them are acting as a guard uh, commander. I was going to say that and uh, uh, Dan Zed certainly was uh, uh they're checking and, and managing the sentries uh, and they've got well, how do, what does this remind you of Northern Ireland again why 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 am I reminded of northern Ireland because they're they're
4: managing a sentries stationed in the protected concrete sangars around the entrance
3: of the base it's it's just like... Fairly similar, yeah. Actually, it's quite like childwell and the Well, it's quite of, like a lot of places, actually. Camps in England. Clacton. Now, you're going to be... You're taking over a bit of the work now. You missed now.
4: that. I said Clacton. You missed miss Clacton. <laughs> Very witty of you, Thanks, Gary. mate. Now, Gunner Andrew R. was one of the men on duty, and he says this. Two hours on, four hours off, all the way through the night. You go to your sanger surrounded by Hesco bastions, huge metal square block uh, blocks filled with sand. You had your GPMG, Gary. general purpose machine gun, your personal weapons, and you've got your radio. You're standing up, always checking your arcs. Arcs of you fire, what? he means. it means his arcs of fire. Looking out for threats just in case anybody was there. Just scanning your arcs, looking. Uh, I've your it. arc. Will you stop it? <laughs> just scanning it. your arcs, looking for suspicious cars or suspicious people. Looking out for snipers or RPGs. Pete? RPGs
3: uh, Rocket Patrol <laughs> <laughs> Well
4: done, Got it wrong It wasn't a brilliant job It was <laughs> quite boring At times <laughs>
3: now the first rha were were uh, in uh, in basra specifically to support the first Cheshires, uh first cheshire regiment that's the infantry battalion and they the first rha remember no guns they well they 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 there as infantry as well and they're carrying out patrols and setting up the same kind of vehicle checkpoints that that, that all their predecessors had done in northern ireland exactly the same and this is what gunner andrew r chestnut troop battery says we do vehicle stops, checking cars
4: for weapons or car bombs. We would be using two Land Rovers. The first would stop on the left. The second would stop on the right, just behind you. Whilst vehicles were coming through, uh, it would ter- we would stop certain vehicles, pull them into the side. We'd get the driver out of the car, not forcefully, but we'd get him out. Somebody would search the driver, while others searched the car. We got taught you had to do it really thoroughly check the wheels, check the rims, look underneath it. To search one car properly takes five to 10 minutes. You haven't got that long to wait uh, on one car when you've got another or other cars coming through. One could be a, a car bomb on its way to blow up another patrol. So it was get the driver out, search him, have a quick look in the glove compartment, under the seats, in the boot, the obvious places. It was just a time thing. Then it was,
3: you're all right. Off you go. So it's just there's two types of search. There's a, quite a detailed search, and then another one just the obvious places. I oh, see that, that's very well explained.
4: Now, here again at the
3: Bath
4: headquarters, bah. the first RHA was subject to terrifyingly random mortar attacks that were far more intensive than they'd ever
3: been at the presidential palace. Wow, there's shells crashing all round them, and there was a rude awakening. <laughs> We've always, all, all of us have had one of them at uh, some time in our lives. A uh, rude awakening for the poor old exhausted uh, gunner Andrew R. as he lay uh, in his tent. Nearly made a mistake there, Pete, didn't you? I, I had his name in the script. <laughs> now,
4: this is Gunner Andrew R. I was asleep, I was knackered, I'd had a long day. I was drifting off into a nice, deep, comfortable sleep. All of a sudden, heard this BOOM! I woke up straight away, jumped out of my bed. What the fuck was that? We're getting mortared. You get your helmet and body armour. All body armour is for is to hold your guts in. That's what was what it was designed for. If you got hit by a mortar, you can kiss your butt goodbye.
3: Lovely turn of phrase, as young gunner Andrew are, um, they're they're forced to move out of their nice air-conditioned tents uh, into into the bombed-out buildings, uh, what remains of them anyway. And this is what Lance Bombardier Dan Zed says. There were a, a few rooms that hadn't been bombed out and we had to move from tents into them. That was a nightmare, because these rooms weren't air-conditioned anymore. Nothing worked. No power to them. The rooms were absolutely stifling hot, even at night. You'd struggle sleeping in a pool of your own sweat, which isn't pleasant.
4: It's not that pleasant, sleeping in a pool of somebody else's sweat.
3: No. Well, your experience is much more varied in these things. Clearly.
4: Now, they... uh... They sent out frequent patrol to try and catch the Iraqi squads firing their harassing mortars and making the additional RPG attacks, but they never seemed to have any success.
3: No, no matter how they try, they, they just can't catch them in the act. By the time they get to where the, the mortars or the RPGs are coming for, they bugger off. Um, or um, long disappeared. Oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> and, uh, well, it, they're in a city. It's easy to hide in a city, isn't it? Um, how do you think the, the lads felt about this? Well,
4: it's both stressful and frustrating as they work the fruitless long hours.
3: That's a bit like your normal nights,
4: only to have what sleep they could catch disturbed by the crash of nearby explosions. Uh, you, there was not even the traditional resort of drinking themselves to near oblivion, uh, for drinking was strictly prohibited.
3: Yeah, and this is what again uh, a fantastic interview. Gonna uh, gu- Andrew R. Chestnut Troop Battery says there was a no can rule. How many cans, Gary? <laughs> no
4: (laughs) No can rule you can't drink on a tour it's a serious situation if someone's been drinking the night before and they wake up all shitty and they're on patrol with you you ain't going to want them with you because they're a liability they can't do their job because they've got a minging headache that's putting them at risk and the team we did have certain uh, function nights but it was a two can rule with us being out there that long our bodies acclimatise and we had like a detox. We sweated that much that everything we'd done through our lives, drinking the beer, had all gone. Our livers were shining brand new by the end of it. You'd have one can, and you'd feel the effect straight away. Your body forgets what it's like to have beer. Two cans, and you'd be basically just about pissed. It'd be a lot cheaper, wouldn't it? It would, actually, yeah. Now, a further serious drawback was the near-inevitable return of serious stomach disorders. Ah,
3: Bain's disease, heart's variant. Heart's variant.
4: Now, warned by his own and others' uh, experienced on his first tour, Dan Zedd <laughs> thought he'd taken every possible precaution to preserve the integrity of his insides. <laughs> That's very positive.
3: That's very yes. And this is Lance Bombardier, Dan Zed, of Bee Battery. There was a big thing made about washing your hands. I'd wash my hands before I'd eat. After I'd eaten, before I went to the toilet, and after I went to the toilet. Washed with bottled water and alcohol gel as well to get, to give a, a bit of extra protection. If you're going to get it, though, you're going to get it. Uh, and he, what happened? Well, he he was again one of the unlucky ones and he suffered an
4: almost surrealistic experience uh, that it's uh, unlikely he'll ever forget.
3: Oh, thank God he's down as a, as a pseudonym. <laughs> um, right, this is what Dan Zed said. It started off with stomach cramps, and that's when you think, "Hey, oh, <laughs> oh, no, not Hey, up. something's wrong here. <laughs> then you start going to the toilet a little bit more often than you do normally. Then it starts with a diarrhea under pressure. It's coming out like a fire hose, <laughs> not straight down, but at angles as well, which I found quite new. <laughs> then, as soon as it's come out at one end. It's coming out the other end. You're literally jumping off the toilet, turning round and being sick as well. That doesn't that once or twice. That's happening continuously. You go back to bed and you're up again five minutes later, and you've got to run to the toilet. It's quite hard to control as well. And you know that that that's uh, it's all very me, well me laughing at that. That's just that's just British sense humour. Toilets are funny, but it's not funny. Why is this not funny? Other than that, well, what is it? What if you're is, a
4: human being, you'd be sorry for him. What is one of the major side effects when you have uh, diarrhea? And this is much worse than diarrhea. Sore ass. Sore ass, but also dehydration, and that's an obvious danger. Uh, and indeed, without fairly immediate medical treatment, there's a real risk of death. Bear in mind where they are. Think where they are. Yeah. Fortunately, help was at hand. And someone who shall remain nameless was soon admitted gonna, into, gonna Dan Zed. was soon admitted into the medical tent you put the name in again. I did, yeah. Where two intravenous drips were inserted to rehydrate his suffering
3: body. I am think of my body suffering during this next couple.
4: And this is Lance Bombardier Dan
3: Zedd once more. That's when it started getting a little bit horrible. It enabled me to sleep because I wasn't feeling so rough with a bit more fluid in my system. But because of what diarrhoea and vomiting is, you don't have any control over your bowels. When you're asleep, you have no idea it's coming. I woke up three times that night having to change my shorts. I crapped myself three times. It wasn't very pleasant. I was a bit delirious wandering around the bath party headquarters at two or three in the morning, holding an intravenous drip. It kind of unnerved a few people that came out of the tents to see what was going on. You used to imagine with his introvert, you know, those trolleys with a,
4: yeah, a drip on. Probably thought that it was a haunted palace. Yeah. Now, all in all, he would be out of action for three days until the bug had cleared his system. I think he's clear The words cleared, right, clear out. Yeah. How long did you have heart's variant? It was uh, just only a day, a day wasn't really. It? It was, uh, and you moaned like hell, and you couldn't
3: walk up a very slight incline. And uh, what about Bain's disease? I had that, and I did
4: uh, the boot. I seem <laughs> to remember.
3: Yeah, you were like a hero.
4: Gary. I was. Now the first RHA moved in June two thousand and four from the Bath Party headquarters into Camp Cherokee. That? which was situated near the Shat Al Arab Waterway in the Makili District of Basra.
3: There's some great names, Shat <laughs> Great. Now, what does uh, Lance Bombardier Danze start say about this? He says this. The whole regiment, that's first RHA, was there, which was a problem because the RSM was about, which creates a lot of bullshit. Your uniform has to be 100% correct all the time. You've got to be wearing your floppy hat at all time. You've got to be paying the correct compliment compliments to officers. You used to play compliments to officers, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> you ended up on a charge, didn't you? which you should do anyway, but when you become comfortable with B-battery, you sort of forget about minor things like that. But because he's the RSM and it's his job, he's trying to enforce that. It just became pointless. Pointless things. Pointless, needless tasks. The RSM wants this done or the RSM wants that done, giving us crappy little jobs that really don't need doing. I think it's probably a good idea we made... uh, Uh, Lance Bombardier Dan Zed Anonymous, otherwise I think he might be uh, a bombardier, no, (laughs) a gunner again. (laughs) Now here they were again
4: on escort and patrolling duties with the added responsibility for guarding the Iraq Police Communications Centre. In August 2004, the whole of the unit was moved back to the Basra Palace. Here... One of their main roles was in escorting the public liaison team
3: working on the reconstruction projects for housing sites and hospitals. That's trying to get some sort of infrastructure working again, isn't it? Um However, is that, is that helping? Uh, does that stop the terrorism, the, uh, the attacks? Well, no, the increasing intensity
4: of the urban unrest and terrorism was such that it was apparent that the men of the first RHA were increasingly vulnerable to concerted Iraqi attacks, as the political as well as the military situation in Basra threatened to spin yet further
3: out of control. And this is Dan Zed again, uh, Lance Bombardier Dan Zed. The Mahadi militia started to kick off trouble in the city. For quite a long time, we were locked down into Basra Palace because if we weren't armoured, we weren't allowed on the streets. That's how serious the the situation was. It was only Challenger 2 tanks and warrior armoured fighting vehicles uh, that were allowed on the streets because there was a massive RPG threat. Wow.
4: Now, although there were a couple of mortar attacks made on the palace, they were lucky, and again, they suffered no casualties. When things had once again calmed down, they were allowed to resume the patrols but only in their specially
3: armoured Land Rovers. Do you remember all the fuss about Land yeah, Rovers yeah, yeah. and how they had to bring in armoured ones and yeah. no one had foreseen it and people are say well why didn't they foresee it? Well because they didn't. You know?
4: Now by now they were fully aware of the risks and the precautions taken had become even more extreme
3: as Lance Bombardier Dan Zed tells us. You were more aware of what was going on You were being a bit more extreme in your route variations, driving down the wrong way at 70 miles per hour, driving through central reservations, back streets I'd never seen before. Skills Skills and drills became second nature. The importance of top cover was phenomenal because it's them that sees the threat and it's them that takes on the threat. We in Dowman's troop didn't actually have any serious incidents. You'd get the odd shot fired, but we took no casualties. Now, after a while, as nothing uh, untoward
4: had occurred, they began to reintroduce the use of non-armoured vehicles on patrols and escort duties in mid-September. But soon afterwards, a three-vehicle convoy from Altamar Troop came under attack. In front was an armoured snatch Land Rover, behind an ordinary Land Rover with other armoured snatch bringing up the rear.
3: So in, yeah, the front's the armoured. Then the, the ordinary one's in the middle, and then the armoured snatch. The, yeah,
4: that's what uh, I said. No, you didn't. I'm sorry, <laughs>
3: when you listen, you'll find out.
4: <laughs> that's what I said. All right, Gary. Armoured snatch at the front. Ordinary Land Rovers in the middle with another armoured snatch bringing up the rear. It's like a it's like an ordinary Land Rover sandwich. <laughs> yes, it is.
3: It's lovely, isn't it? Now the the, the convoys hit by uh, there's a the, what happens is there's a big explosion. And what is that explosion? What is it, Gary? I, I think it's a
4: 155 millimetre shell. Uh, it had been packed all round with nuts and bolts. Oh, lovely! Yeah. With nuts and bolts, then covered in roadside rubbish and detonated by a command
3: wire. Wow. Uh, there were, uh, fortunately no serious casualties, but uh, there were a couple of minor injuries, uh, and a couple of the other lads had shell shock, and I don't blame it well, you know, PTSD. I don't actually blame them at all.
4: Uh, However, the patrols continued regardless, and thus it was that a real tragedy occurred for the men of Altamar troop, when on the 28th of September 2004, one of their armoured snatch land Rovers was
3: hit by an RPG. One of the South Knots had had a lucky escape, yeah, and that, that was Lance Bombardier Dan Zed. He says this, the night before I'd been sec- seconded to Altamar because they'd had the casualties. I was actually supposed to be on that patrol, but I got rotated off at the last minute because I'd done the night patrol. So he should have been in that bloody Land Rover, yeah. Uh, so what happens to, what What does the, it do? Well, the rocket-propelled
4: grenade smashed its way into the front of the snatch Land Rover. It was armoured, but it just wasn't enough. The men of the first RHA had, They were deeply affected by the death of two of their own. Many were too young to have experienced death at such close quarters before. Mm. And this once more... It's Lance Bombardier Dan Zed.
3: Yeah, he's talking about what he could have have happened to him, remember, but it didn't. It was some other poor sod. He says this. They were hit by an RPG. The RPG entered through the left-hand side of the front cab of the snatched Land Rover. The driver's compartment punched through the armoured glass, went straight past Corporal Mark Taylor, Spud, and hit Dave Lawrence square on the left-hand side of his body. They reckon Lozer, that's Lawrence, was killed instantly. He was in bits. And Spud never regained consciousness. He'd been injured so badly that he was barely breathing when they pulled him out of the Land Rover. The lads did everything right from that point. They started getting a little bit of small arms fire as well. They sorted the casualties out and abandoned the snatch, took all the ECM electronic countermeasures kit out of it and basically legged it to a Cherokee. Spud was pronounced dead in the helicopter. That was a massive, massive shock. The way I feel about it now is that it's probably better that it happened later in the tour rather than at the beginning. If it had happened at the beginning, we would have had it hanging over us for the whole tour and I don't think anybody's mind would have been properly on the job. Two people that you've worked with, two people that you know have died. For them to suddenly not to be there every day, it's unusual. To be honest, I'd never really known anyone that's died before. There was people in the battery who'd known them since they were kids. What you've got to remember is a battery is a family. Although I'm TA and I hadn't been part of that family for long, they were still my family, still close friends. Yeah, that's it. A...
4: Now, it was perhaps fortunate that it was very near the end of the first RHA Tour of Duty. The desire for indiscriminate revenge had taken over and there's no doubt that B Battery was particularly badly affected. And you're going to go on, as Lance Bombardier Dan said.
3: As a collective, B Battery wanted to go out that night and tear Basra apart, but obviously we didn't. We couldn't do that. There was certainly a feeling it was them and us. Uh, I'd always thought to uh, to, to myself that I would rather take a shot than risk being shot at. And I think it hit home a little bit more. If they were going to take an inch, oh, I was going to take a mile. The slightest thing would have set B battery off when they were out on their escorts. But fortunately for the Iraqis, it didn't happen. You hated them. I've never truly hated a race of people before until then. I just couldn't stand the sight of them. I did not want to look at them. At that I didn't want them to look at me. And you can, I mean, that's it's about completely screaming.
4: understandable. When the bodies of uh, Loza and Spud were returned back to the UK, the ceremony was broadcast on the news, but it was little compensation to their friends. It was under this cloud that the regiment began to move back home.
3: Yeah, again, they they feel vulnerable during the drive back to the airport, for, you know, to, to Basra International. Well, particularly uh, after that, Yeah, after their and, recent experience. And that that was done on the 10th of October 2004. Uh, uh, what happens when they get back? Well, it, I think it's pretty well out there. The demobilisation arrangements, they go well, don't they? Yes, it's outstanding. And they were safe home
4: the very same day. And once more, you're going to tell us of Dan Zed's, or
3: Lance Bombardier Dan Zed's experience. It was almost an anticlimax. You got out of this environment where almost everything you look at is dangerous and you're back to green fields and everyday life. The run to work people taking kids to school, things that people do every day, where I'd been doing something you didn't do every day for the last six months. It's quite weird to see people moving on with their everyday life. Quite hard to remember that life doesn't stop while you're away or when you're away. Uh, Now, funny enough, that's where we're finishing the story of the South House. It isn't the end of the story, is it? Uh, I
4: mean... Yeah, but it's got to stop, as you refer to it, the wheel of history... Has to stop sometime.
3: Well, yeah, there's, there's loads more tours. I mean, I know. Uh, well, uh, Afghanistan
4: there's... begins to demand reservists. It doesn't seem to stop, does it? Uh, and
3: and and then, uh, so they're performing this role, this role of reservists r- uh, right through. Uh, but uh, actually, eventually, they, they they fall. The South Notts fall victim. To the uh, defence cuts and the battery is closed down um, and then they rise again. You'd expect the South Knots to rise again. But they're now a very, very small part of a bigger unit. What are they now? Uh, I think it's
4: C Troop, isn't it? of 210th Staffordshire battery, which is of itself part of the 103rd Lancashire Artillery Volunteers Regiment.
3: It all gets a bit far away from... I mean, the units now are getting ridiculous, you know, because every small bit belongs to another bit, and it might be simple. Yeah, it's still based at Ballwell Barracks, though, and uh, and armed with a 105mm light gun. Now, um, what has been the point of what we've been doing with this? Because a lot of people have said, why are you doing it? You clearly know bugger all about uh, the modern army. Well, lots of people have
4: said, what's the point?
3: (laughs) That's the podcast. We've just talking.
4: been coming but we've just come back from the Great War Group uh, weekend in Brighton. a lot of people said, "What's the point? Why are you here? Won't you go away?" That sort of thing. They, they do say that. Well, the point Pete, <laughs> yes, of our story is the importance of the territorial army, now the Army Reserve. As with the soldier's life, this podcast has reflected the long periods of boredom. Before bursting into Boom. life with the story of the South Knots of uh, Hazar's involvement in the Iraqi War, yeah. hence the rather unfitting title of the South
3: Knots of Hazar's in peacetime, because we led into this. Yeah, and some of those quotes. It, they, 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 I mean, you you were in the army, but you didn't serve in active service. And that last quote we had from Dan said, quite a lot up. of
4: inactive service."
3: Yes, but. <laughs> They're all the business about, you know, you come back from active service and ordinary life in Britain's going on. And you were, by then, work in 2003. You were in a job, you were working, you are going to work every day. While lads out in Afghanistan or Iraq are are fighting for us, whether we want them to or not is, I'm afraid, part of it. But they are actively representing us and risking their lives for us. And we do
4: admire them and their contribution to our defence. Yes. Whether called into action or not... Over the long years since the Second World War. And we, we take our hats off to the South Nazi Cesars.
3: And all the other TA and, ter- and now Reserve Army people. Well done, lads. Thanks for what you're doing. But we put our hats back on now.
4: Yeah. Because our heads
3: are getting cold. Yeah, our heads are getting cold. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. <coughs> Thanks for listening to the show blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, blah. us You can now buy us a coffee blah, blah, blah. Visit www. www.buymeacoffee.com Backslash P-G-M-H
4: Or Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah, blah, 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 blah. And we'd be jolly grateful Cheers
2: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work.
3: Acast powers the world's best podcasts.
0: Here's a show that we recommend. wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. acast.com
4: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at slash.